Welcome back to the Fundraising Radicals podcast. I'm your host, Craig Pollard. Today's fundraising leadership conversation comes from Kenya and is with Tessie Maritim, former organization development coordinator at Care International and soon to be Oxford MBA student. We're going to be talking about many things, about Africa's creative industry, leadership and international development, how to change systems, shift power and localize development within a major international NGO and much, much more. So Tessie, welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to see you. Um, so tell me about your your last days at Care International. Yes. So um, I've been with Care just over six years. So I began right out of university, January 2017. Been with Care six years, two two different roles, uh, but mainly based here in Nairobi, working for the Secretariat. And it's been it's been a wonderful six years, but the last few days have really been, or last few weeks really, have been a lot of, you know, culling documents and um, going through material, doing handovers, uh, talking to people and reminiscing on, you know, how the journey has been. I think it's been challenging. It's been it's been rewarding, and I'm really looking forward to taking those lessons into my new chapter. Mm, tell me about that. That's exci- That's exciting, right? Yeah. Another exciting step. Super exciting. Yeah. I have always said that I have a, a bit more school in me. I did, you know, an undergrad in law, and then I uh, did a masters in. AID, which is Africa and International Development, uh, both areas of interest and were really valuable for my journey. Uh, and then sort of started working and have been working the last six years, as I mentioned. But I think I just always had that niggling feeling that I could I could do with, you know, uh, another year or two of school. And so it was always in the back of my mind um, that I would go back to school. And when I looked at uh, the work that I've done and the profile that I have in terms of my education. I have a very social sciences and humanities background and, you know, experience. So I thought to complement that and to challenge myself, I would love to get a bit more business knowledge and some background in, you know, how to think from a business. <laughs> so you signed up for an MBA at Oxford? I did, yes. Amazing. Yeah, and, and super, super excited to have been accepted to Oxford um, and also received a funding award from the MasterCard Foundation uh, as part of their, you know, commitment to Africa's development and supporting young talent on the continent, which is, um, I'm really, really honoured to receive and uh, just really makes my life a lot easier. <laughs> so... And completely deserved, though. Completely deserved. Thank you. Many congratulations. It's fantastic. It's a really exciting next step. Let's talk about that in a moment. How is the Tessie that joined Care International six years ago different from Tessie today during those last few days? Oh, gosh. I think when I joined, I was really, really hopeful, really um, excited, kind of, as I mentioned, out of university, ready to take on the world. And I think what's happened over the years is I've kind of got into like a routine. Um, It was exciting work, really dynamic, got to work with a lot of different teams globally, a lot of different exciting projects around the decolonizing of aid, localizing, this idea of a multipolar world and the idea that expertise and power exists in in different parts of the world a lot of that thinking and and those values informed the work and the projects that I led but it did I think get kind of I I felt stagnant at some point and wanted a a, a challenge and and so as much as (laughs) I'm finishing I I think I'm feeling a sense of needing inspiration and needing a new challenge and and looking forward to getting back into that momentum of doing new, you know, doing new things and applying myself in different ways that I think 
um, when you've been in a role for the time that I've been, I think it gets, you know, monotonous. And I always joke that for a millennial, I think I kind of exceeded my 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 limits or my what's usually the you know the, the typical <laughs> your threshold. Your, yeah, yeah, my threshold. This you know, it's two years and people leave. That's kind of the standard practice among a lot of my peers. But I had a really really fantastic you know, time at care and I truly did enjoy being there overall. So for me, it wasn't really a feeling that uh, I, I was happy, you know, for the time that I was there. But I, for me, as I stand today, that need for kind of inspiration and a new challenge is is what has driven me to to seek this new chapter. Six years is, is a, it's a long period of time as a, as a Gen X uh, with maybe more of a millennial mindset myself, <laughs> that six years seems like a really long time to stay in one role. And the challenges of of just the enormity of an organization of working in a big ING or the enormity and the scale of the the work, the scale of the organization, the management, the the, the pace of change, it isn't an easy isn't an easy thing to, to sort of keep pushing at. And, and, and I, you know, I, I've worked with a lot of INGOs and it, it can be tiring as well. And it's important to sort of refresh ourselves and seek new challenges and new ways of maybe re-engaging and find, refinding that energy. Is that where you're at? Or yeah. Does that sound familiar? Oh yeah, definitely, definitely resonates with me. So, for, so it was, it was two roles over six years. So I did do as much as my work, in the last three, four years, evolved from that initial role. What was the first role you were in at CARE? So it was Glo- Global Governance Officer. And then my current role is Organizational Development Coordinator. So that was two and a, three years. And then this is another three and a, a bit years. Yeah, okay. And and tell me about those roles. How, how in, in what way that the Global Governance, what, what was the sort of core part of that role and then your sort of organizational development role as well tell me more about them so i would say that the essence of the work what i was working on was the same it's the role that i played in those in those areas of work that changed so with the global governance role it was working with the offices that were within care that were transitioning to become you know local organizations uh, accompanying diversification priorities that CARE had committed to engaging all the different stakeholders in CARE because CARE is a large, you know, INGO, as you mentioned, with different actors, different power sitting in different places, depending on what, you know, the topic is, what the area of work is. So navigating that at the time in that role was much more of a supportive role, um, administrative role, I would say. And then in the last few years, I've taken on a more coordinator, leadership, co-design and relationship building role, I would say. And I think one of the benefits of having the longevity at care is that institutional memory and being able to hold things up that we had done years ago that I think I was at the time of, you know, leaving, I was the in our team was the person who had worked on in our team the longest so even though it doesn't sound that long, but for the work that we were doing, I think that serves, you know, like a benefit and yeah. And is part of the stress you're feeling and leaving about how you pass on that institutional memory and, and, and what you share with who and how, how it's captured and, and kept alive, the projects? Totally. Yeah. I think one of the benefits, particularly in the last two years of what I was working on was the constant sort of documenting, writing terms of reference, capturing a lot of what we were doing and, you know, the guidance, the steps, and it's just sort of rearranging that and making sure that that is passed on to colleagues that are staying on um, in a really effective way, in a way that they can actually take forward. Also relationships, as I had mentioned, is a really key part of this role. And so joining those dots and kind of including those colleagues in these last meetings, inducting them so that they are able to, you know, just continue those, you know, that proximity and, and maintaining those relationships once we've left. But I think uh, for me, I it's been the colleagues that were, you know, I've left sort of working on the things I was working on are, I have no qualms, no worries about them taking it on. They will definitely be able to do, 
you know, to take on the challenge and do a lot more than also where we kind of left the work. So it's, yeah, like I'm really, I'm looking forward to just from the outside watching to see where that goes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so you'll be, you'll be moving to Oxford in a few weeks. Two, three weeks now. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Because you, you studied in the UK before, right? I did, yeah. So I did both my uh, undergraduate and my master's, my first master's in the UK, the first one in Manchester, super student city, uh, and then Edinburgh for my MSc. Yeah, it's a great city. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. And then Edinburgh was wonderful as well. Really cold, but super beautiful and one of the best years of my life for sure there. So yeah, I, I'm very, very familiar with the UK. I have a lot of my loved ones there, friends, family. So uh, it kind of feels like a lot of, I'm kind of going to the other half of my community <laughs> and get to spend a year with them and nice. yeah, just uh, experience a new, a new chapter. Wonderful, wonderful. You mentioned Edinburgh. I, I, I was born about an hour south of Edinburgh oh, wow. in the cold wild north northumberland so edinburgh is a is a very special a very special city uh, yeah but in winter there are a few colder places uh, <laughs> even even in nairobi winter oh god oh god <laughs> doesn't reach that not, same. not even it doesn't even compare yeah yeah I'll, that's sort of one of the things i really yeah. miss about nairobi nairobi's weather is just some of the best in the world like really cool gets warm and it's just beautiful such a green city yeah i'll really miss that um but you know yeah it's home always so we'll be back for sure yeah of course yeah. of course and, and and i guess step stepping out of, of the ingo sector this is i'm seeing this more and more and more people who are tired of, of working in the nonprofit sector um, who maybe have had their shoulder against projects for, for big chunks of time and just needing to step out will you do you see yourself coming back in at some point what what's what's beyond the MBA for you yeah so I I've loved working in the NGO space uh, I think I really resonate with especially the conversations around the decolonizing of aid that a lot of INGOs are taking up and really committing to and working on the leadership of, you know, local organizations in finding their, you know, their, leading their own solutions and having INGOs really change the role that they play in the sector, I think is something that resonates with me very personally. So I think I would, you know, I, I would never say that I wouldn't go back. I think I'm also someone that has a lot of different interests, particularly around the creative economy um, and the creative economy in Africa, especially. We've seen, you know, the role of uh, different sort of creative arts, whether that's, you know, the traditional sort of music and art and film and the role that that plays in changing a lot of the narratives that we see about Africa, you know, globally, and the role that Africans have played in really, you know, leading that and, and catalyzing new perceptions of, of the continent. Uh, and then also in the digital space, when you look at content creation and uh, the way that uh, Africans can use, you know, the internet space to do you know, climate justice advocacy and, you know, fashion design and expression. I, that to me is something that I find really exciting, but I but have noticed that there is less institutional and infrastructural support for those spaces. There's a huge, you know, it's a really dynamic space that's growing really rapidly, but there isn't enough investment in that sort of back-end institutional institution building. So part of the reason why I'm doing this MBA is to be able to equip myself to play a role to do that. And I think for me, it's it's just so exciting to see, you know, my peers and, and you know, the generation that is younger than me and how they use the internet and how they use creativity to inspire and express themselves. So I just want to... I would love to contribute to that space and I, I, I can't say, you know, exactly where I think this will go, but I think there are a lot of different ways, you know, that that could happen. A lot of different stakeholders that I would love to maybe join, engage, participate in. Yeah. Yeah. 
from from where you are in in Nairobi, do you feel this sort of rising excitement about Kenya, about Africa's rise in terms of arts, media, all of this? Because I, I think you, you know those images still dominate in in the Western world, right? But but those of us who 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 have spent huge amounts of time across Africa, the the sense that there's a deep optimism. It feels like there's a huge optimism that the next sort of 50 years, Africa is going to explode in all sorts of brilliant, exciting, entrepreneurial ways. Oh, yes. Do you get that? Do you have that sense? Do you have that optimism? Definitely. I think it's a, it's almost an equal level of optimism and kind of frustration as well, because as much as there's a lot that, you know, with the spirit and the talent and the way that you know, especially young people are showing up and existing currently. There's still a lot to be said about, you know, the leadership on the continent, a lot to be said about the way we are governed and the way that money and, you know, resources are misused and also the role of global actors on the continent and the way that they influence a lot of what doesn't go well on the continent. So I think, yeah, as much as there's that feeling of, excitement and optimism there's I think also a deep frustration across the continent about that and I think what you see when when you think about the narratives on the continent is sometimes it's very dominated by some parts of Africa because you know larger economies more people Nigeria Kenya South Africa yeah of course yeah (laughs) yeah exactly there you go so what you find is when you talk about the uh, African narratives, is those those are some of the most dominant voices, but there is a lot more nuanced contributions and perspectives that need to happen. So it's it's an extremely layered conversation, and and that's why for me it's it's what I see myself committing to and would like to play a, a bigger role in contributing. I think when I was doing my MBA application, I had to marry my the experience that I have in the INGO space with what I'm trying to do in the future. And I had never thought that there were similarities, but I was able to actually draw them out around the work that I was doing, you know, at CARE was around accompanying and being a champion for marginalized voices in that space. They were within CARE, those? Within CARE. So like smaller, you know, members from the global south, you know, external organizations in Africa, in other parts of the world that are not in sort of the typically powerful um, and with the way that it's set up, typically powerful positions um, and through, you know, advocacy and relationship building and championing their perspectives and their voices. I see that skill set being exactly what I think is needed in contributing to creative, to, to championing creative voices and being an advocate for the importance of um, creativity in in the way that we exist. I think we are inspired by, you know, music and film and what we watch and what we listen to. And the people who make that, I think, need to be compensated effectively and well in order to be able to, you know, to do that work in a way that sustains them. So uh, it is very, there's a lot of, for me, what I've seen similarities, yeah. Well, I guess they're existing in the same system, right? I think it's often it's often that INGOs sort of uh, and charities sort of position themselves as somehow outside the dominant systems. You know, the dominant narratives, the the systems we're all conscripted to, whether that's colonialism, imperialism, patriarchy, white supremacy, the list goes on, right? And yeah, it, it, I I think it's deeply problematic when. And, and I think this is part of the change, maybe, that um, that charities are recognizing that they are not. They are part of this system and and, and, and addressing this and it is so fundamental. And if, if they can't, then how on earth can the rest of society? Yeah, I think you've captured it really well, that it is the same system. And I think that's why you see that the role or what's needed is very similar or the same. So, yeah, I love that. I love what you've said there. Yeah, it's deeply frustrating, though, right? It's, I mean, how does an how does an organisation the size of of care with with that history, with that those those deep entrenched systemic power imbalances, how practically does it 
begin to shift power? How does it genuinely start to localize and, and decolonize? Yeah, I think there's a role that policies and, and governance and uh, actual commitments and expressions of that desire to change. But I think the really key factor is around culture and behavior and ways of working, which is not as easy to translate or to effect through policies, right? Like you can, you know, I think we've done a lot of really valuable work to optimize and evolve our documents and our policies, but you find that that doesn't necessarily push change in the ways, you know, that different parts of of the confederation behave. And I think there's a socializing and I think it's also a factor of being a bit siloed, you know, different members within the confederation, different interests, different, you know, even individual sort of contexts that affect maybe even understanding. I think we'd found even when there was a big conversation in 2020 around racism and white supremacy, even within global South groups, there's a there's a discrepancy in terms of understanding of why is that a topic of interest in our context? Like that's a very American conversation. That's discourse that happens there that's not really relevant. Um, and so I think when you look at that as an example, you see that there's you're starting from so many different positions and you have to really tackle the issue from that point and addressing it and accompanying uh, those perspectives and and listening, really. There's, there's been a lot of listening, a lot of trying to facilitate conversations that are really difficult. But I think, you know, it, it changes. It's been a really, I think, kind of just being comfortable with, okay, what are the wins, small wins that we can we can achieve as we work towards this bigger vision? Because I think it can be really frustrating when you really want that to happen quickly and with such a... And overwhelming, right? How having such a having having that aspiration and i think this is this this is really resonating with a couple of people i've uh, spoken to about different things recently yeah is this this horizon for decolonization seems like such a huge wall to climb over yeah and sort of breaking it down into those steps and setting sort of setting the intention and changing the direction so at least you're pointing towards that horizon yes and daily because I think particularly smaller NGOs are sort of overwhelmed by this idea of how do we how do we do this uh, given that we're scrabbling around for, for cash for for people for talent for, for all of the core things we need to do our work and then this is overlaid on top of it this expectation to decolonize yeah yeah it's 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 overwhelming um and I think oh gosh yeah it's it's just needing okay <laughs> Just accepting kind of sometimes this is as far as we can go and and that's good enough for now, you know. Yeah, but also part of the overwhelmingness is is how important it is and how fundamental to the future of the sector and to, to the credibility of INGOs. For sure. There's definitely an urgency for these changes to happen because they have real, you know, effects and impacts on, you know, particularly groups that have been marginalized by these systems and it's kind of it's an urgent it needs to be treated with that level of urgency you know even though the pace of change can be really really frustrating yeah re- yeah really interesting and and power is obviously a key part of this shifting power how does an organization like case genuinely shift power from the global north to the global south you know, you talked about policies, you talked about these conversations, but when it's not just within care as well, it's those donor networks and those relationships and those sort of systems that are embedded in there too. That's such a deep, big project that has the potential to become the only project for an organization like care. Yeah. I think the conversation around power is really interesting uh, because even when you think about the framing of global north giving, you know, power to global south, it's kind of, it it does kind of have that connotation of, okay, a passive sort of um, engagement from the global south. A gift. Yeah, like a gift. (laughs) 
know. <laughs> yeah, but we give you back everything that we've taken from you over the last sort of yeah. like 200, 300, 400 exactly. years. Exactly. But that's, yeah. yeah, it's and it's the wrong characterization for it, definitely. Yeah, definitely the wrong framing because you'll see and find that a lot of the Global South actors were stepping into those spaces with the expertise, with the voice, being able to champion themselves and not needing that gift, as you've mentioned, or or that as much of a hand in, in from the Global North specifically. But I think there's a real expectation around Global North actors and sort of in this system being more reflective of the way that they exist and changing the way that they operate and engage with Global South uh, actors um, in the Confederation and, and outside as well. One of uh, the most exciting projects that I worked on in my last few years at CARE was external affiliation, which was this idea of bringing external organizations into CARE's governance to play a role and to influence the Confederation and the way that we work. And what we found in those engagements was that smaller um, really established, very well networked, very strong reputations in, you know, South Africa, for example, were asking care, you know, what value do you bring, you know, to us and what what do we get out of this relationship? Because they already, in terms of being globally networked, in terms of having strong positions and activism around, you know, uh, GBV and having strong feminist positions, they they had a lot of that already. And so I think for CARE, the challenge was really reflecting internally and thinking, okay, how can we be genuinely invested and genuinely have these organizations participate in a way that's actually really meaningful and not tokenistic? And that is an ongoing you know, conversation. It's not something that I think will be solved immediately. I think it needs a real, as I mentioned, cultural change. A lot of even when you think about language, a lot of governance meetings at CARE are run in English and that locks out a lot of a lot of groups. Um, the way that it's been centered in certain hierarchies, ETC, I think can also be quite limiting, but I think there is scope and I've seen a real genuine commitment and a lot of goodwill across the Confederation to make that happen. I think it's just, you know, just being open to learning and revising even the commitments we had in 2014, 2018. It's kind of like a constant, which can be frustrating, but I think I think there's been some progress made and I feel proud to have played a part in that and really looking forward to seeing how that progresses, yeah, once I leave. If you're enjoying this conversation and would like to hear other global perspectives on fundraising and leadership in the nonprofit sector, then please do subscribe using the links in the show notes. If you want to find out more about our work, please do visit our website, fundraisingradicals.com. Now, back to the conversation. What does it mean? for you to get a scholarship to study overseas? Yeah. So the MBA is really, really expensive. <laughs> Business courses, master's, you know, education generally is really expensive and graduate programs are really expensive, but the MBA is particularly costly. <laughs> so... And, and li- But the living costs as well, of living somewhere like Oxford is, exactly. is outrageously expensive. Exactly. So... It's such an exclusive, difficult to break into bubble, right? Totally. So I think for me, and this is actually the second year that I've applied. I I got into Oxford last year, but I didn't get funding. So this year, applied again, went through the whole cycle uh, earlier this time so that I could give myself a better chance of, you know, securing funding. And so, you know, actually applied for all the scholarships I was eligible for, and got me how many how many did you apply just give me an idea how many applications did you put in probably uh, 10 to 12 different scholarship applications yeah yeah so that was aside from my existing and this was the these were the ones that were because they were the ones that were automatically sort of your application was just sent to be considered and then they were the ones that were specifically you know you explicitly sort of write an application for and so that was about 10 to 12 over the year and almost all of those scholarships were actually partial, coincidentally. But got, I got rejected from each of those, every one of those. And I remember the last day, so around March this year, I got 
the rejection from my last scholarship on the same day. It was very coincidental and maybe, you know, I don't know. To me, I took it as a sign. But I, on the, the day that I lost, the, I got the rejection from the last scholarship. I got the invitation to apply for this MasterCard scholarship and I had not seen it advertised anywhere. And trust me, I had been looking, I had been really keen, you know, looking everywhere because I really wanted to get the scholarship. And so got the invitation to apply. They just said, you know, based on your profile, you look like you're eligible, please apply to this deadline, you know, all that and applied. And this was a hundred percent, you know, of your fees, living costs, a lot of associated costs related to, you know, joining school and, yeah, I just could not be more thrilled and excited to have received the award. What did you do when you found out? <laughs> I cried. <laughs> I'm a big <laughs> I'm a big crier, so definitely cried. Share the news with everybody. But interestingly, I don't know, it's I, this has been a very almost spiritual journey for me because I've been getting signs that something w- was going to work out and it was small just uh, <laughs> intuitive senses that something tell me about tell me about (laughs) it just i I don't know whether i should say them it just sounds really maybe abstract or like no it's all good it's all no even with the example that i've given of you know the day that i got the last rejection and to me it was kind of like okay my last egg this is my last sort of like thing but coincidentally this last option is the one that i will get funded fully you know it was like a full scholarship that hadn't been with the other options wasn't there. Could you could you have taken them up? Could you have taken up the other options because they were partial? Because in some ways it's just like that's half a scholarship is just still out of reach for so many yeah. young African people, right? It's it's just like you, you'll you'll need to finance that yourself. And again, it 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 cuts out ninety nine percent of the population. Yeah, yeah. I think I had said, you know, partial scholarship is still not ideal, but I'll I'll just I'll see what to do when I get there. It was kind of like let's you know let's take the step, let's do what needs to be done for now, and at a later stage we can figure out how to supplement that. But thankfully, I didn't need to do that. And I think the beauty of this scholarship is the community of other you know scholars and other recipients who are doing amazing things in different spaces, you know, data scientists and. Uh, researchers and doctors and uh, lawyers and teachers like it's just such an eclectic mix and I think we all share that interest and commitment to contributing to the continent in the way that we you know in our respective ways so for me I'm really really honored to have received um, and to be recognized really to me I take it as as an appreciation for what I've done so far and an approval of my dreams in a way you know a kind of recognition that what I feel has been valid because I think as I mentioned earlier feeling a little bit stagnant and you know where where is my inspiration from and taking this time to do the application and then having mastercard foundation up kind of say like yeah we you know that's a valid dream and yeah. we, we'll support you to to make that happen for me is really meaningful so i'm super grateful of course yeah it's, it's, i'm very excited it's wonderful but you thoroughly deserve yeah thoroughly deserve. Yes. it's so exciting you. but you also you told me that you weren't a fundraiser and i think actually what you just described is actually the definition of a fundraiser you've 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 written 12 applications you've had 12 uh, rejections you've had one success and you're smiling and laughing so it's like, <laughs> finally that, that by any definition it's a fundraiser right that determination that grit of just i i i want to make this happen i want to see this through yeah yeah i definitely wasn't smiling and laughing you know months ago but i'm happy that i i can now look back and say you know it was worth it i think yeah i i don't know i think it's i think I've, i'm just so compelled by what i want to achieve and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to to make it happen and really, really feel committed to, as I mentioned, creative community, the creative economy, and especially on this continent. I think if you look at other markets in the US, in the UK, for example, are the leading spaces in terms of, you know, a lot of creative work and the way that those creators are compensated is very differently to the markets here across Africa. So being able to contribute to that. And we have a lot of interesting systems. When you you look at, for example, fintech, when you look at mobile money and the ways that that can contribute to helping 
creators and artists monetize in a way that is unique to our context because when you look even uh, yeah and pesa right and pe- yeah it's just like you know this is like it's just like this is revolutionary yeah and you know i i love how just like you know there were in the uk we went through landlines and then and, and then went to mobile phones the whole continent of africa just skipped yeah. to straight to direct to mobile <laughs> phones and then you know the fintech and pesa and all of the sort of mobile all of that but it's so important for, from a fundraising perspective as well is, is the, the fluidity and the, the ease of transfers of money in, in Africa. It's, it's phenomenal and I think deeply misunderstood beyond the continent. Yeah, totally. And I think as you're saying, you know, and even when you think about where power exists and in something like fundraising, for example, I think that's a real strength that we have on the continent, that innovation around the way that money is transferred and the ease at which that happens and the ways that we can also come together and band together to contribute to, you know, initiatives and to fundraise. I think that's something that's very common here, the way that we come together and the communities and the way that we sort of culturally convene and come together, I think really, really reflects also in some of the ways that we you can look at fundraising opportunities and understanding that I think is key to unlocking a lot of those new opportunities. It's interesting because it's it, it's not really fundraising as well. It's just an expression of solidarity with a community, with a cause, right? It, yeah. It's not a profession it's something that everyone can do and is accessible and therefore it and you know that the funding is going to go directly to the root exactly where you want it to do you probably know the person who's running the project yeah. the cause the the community project yeah and that's super exciting yeah that's proper democratization of fundraising yeah yeah i love how you've expressed that you know it's it's a it's it's a it's a expression of solidarity you know, I think that's a real, that's at the heart of what it is and and what, you know, that kind of innovation can create and what it can open up. How well is that understood in in the INGO sector, though, um, that this, the, these sort of new economies of, of solidarity, that these, these sort of ecosystems of community and, and finance projects, how well is that understood? So I, I'm not as conversant in terms of the advancements and the innovation within the INGO space and engagement of those initiatives. But I know that, you know, CARE has a digital innovation team, uh, women's economic justice. CARE is really big on VSLAs in a lot of different contexts. And I've seen some really innovative work in those areas. And I know that those teams... You know, I can't speak to it too much because I, I don't know the detail, but I, no, <laughs> but for sure, I think I've seen that embracing of, of new technology, new ideas. And I think that's also a big part of how partners come in and their expertise and uh, strengths in the way that they work, being more agile and contributing that to care. And I think because care has been really committed to working with partners and working in partnership that is something that I think we'll see a lot more across care and hopefully in other NGOs. It's, it's interesting, the sort of the, the innovation side of things, it, it always comes back to tech. And, and I, I find that, I, I look at that and, I, and I'm thinking about these communities, of this, this sort of solidarity, which is more about tradition and, and innovating within tradition and, and un- deeply understanding cultures and, and, and how, how they come together, how they resource work, how they, how they do projects. In, in, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, where, where I am, the, the tradition, the, the, the Maori tradition is if you need to raise some money, you'll have something called a hangi, which is a, a meal, and it and tends to be cooked underground. And you invite everyone you know, all of your whanau, your extended family, to the hangi, and they will give you some money. And so if you knew it, need a new roof to, for the marae, the community centre, that's how, that's how fundraising happens. And there's a, this tradition that organisations struggle, I think, to connect with. And I, I feel like there's a, perhaps a disconnect between the sort of traditional fundraising organisations, the profession of fundraising and these economies of solidarity. Yeah, I think what... INGOs can maybe do better is 
that reflection around the role that they play and rethinking the way that they engage with, you know, as you're saying, those communities, those economies, because it's not to say that, you know, they shouldn't play a role at all or that they should be completely removed from that. I think it's just, you know, working better and appreciating and recognizing the the strengths, the value, the the ways that, you know, different communities in different parts of the world exist. And I think that's what's been lacking, this dominance, this approach of kind of replacing what is already existing and, and a lack of recognition of that. So I think that mindset shift and again the cultures in those spaces need to really change. It's interesting. Yeah, you're you're really right. And and there was a brilliant piece of work by Peace Direct, uh, which I'm I'm guessing you've seen, which is the I think they highlighted nine roles that intermediaries can play in decolonization. Have you seen that work? I've seen some, I don't know if it was the one from Peace Direct, but I've seen some variation of that, yeah. Yeah, it's sort of like, the, I think um, I've just I just found them here. It's interpreter, knowledge broker, trainer, coach, convener, connector, advocate, watchdog, critical, and sidekick as well. Those sort of nine yeah. roles that INGOs play. And I think that's so captured so beautifully is just like this much more facilitative connecting role that it sounds like you were really at the heart of within care. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, because of the way the, you know, confederation is structured and, you know, I work at the Secretariat, and we convene, facilitate, you know, coordinate the different actors across care. So I think when you think about those roles that you just mentioned and and really being an ally, I think that's been the heart of of what we've done. And and for me, it's, it's critical and very transferable skills that I think would be valuable for other spaces and is a much more so it's a soft those are a lot of soft skills you know a lot of you know bringing people together community building a lot of convening and kind of like repeated you know actions to sort of and then you get progress and sort of momentum around that but it's been definitely the core of of the work that I've done There's something about creating these spaces as well right and and, and letting other people fill them is you know so one of the quite sort of global north sort of stepping aside and 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 creating space as well but it's it feels like there's a real surge of ownership of this does it from where you're sitting does it feel like the decolonization project is owned by the global south it certainly is i think it's been championed led and you know designed by global south interests and and global south leadership but I think there's also a need to be very aware of, you know, false prophets that are in other maybe parts of the space that dominate and try to really steer this project to different um, and to serve different interests. And I think in my journey, I think I've seen how that can really distract, you know, the broader vision and um, not focusing on, I think just seeing like, you know, who's speaking, who is, who's leading this conversation, who is taking up space and who this idea of, I think you've mentioned it, it's almost like building microphones that other people can use, you know, and really, really being careful that that isn't stolen to serve other interests or to kind of, um, and I think we've seen that conversation a lot around the the localizing, uh, you know, the conversation around localizing and, you know, a dispute around when, INGOs that are based in certain contexts begin to register locally and what does that really count and is considered as local and I think what we've seen with a lot of our global south um, you know groups and teams is that real feeling of you know we are local we work locally but then the other perspective you know from local organizations that have that don't necessarily have those local don't necessarily have those INGO you know, DNAs or relationships and networks. I think, I think there's space for those conversations and there's space for that kind of discourse. But I think the fact that it is led and uh, sort of continued by those voices is critical, um, but not ignoring because it is a very nuanced conversation that we've seen happen in the space uh, more broadly. But I think it's it's a conversation that is 
that is owned. Uh, but also, I think it's important to recognize that even the terms around decolonizing are not necessarily used by all Global South um you know, people from the global south. I don't think those are when you think when you look at language, when you think even of the way that how academic and sort of technical a lot of these initiatives are and kind of being professionalized. I think sometimes that does miss decolonizing can be done without that in outside that framework and that the way that it's currently been defined. I think we've seen you know, indigenous ways of, of, of that happening. And it's been happening years and years before the INGO space caught on and decided to kind of take on a role and that sort of thing. So I think just being careful that that recognition of the work that has been done way before by different, you know, actors is, is considered, yeah. Yeah, because there are so many networks, you know, in sight, you know, Waxy, there's, there's so many brilliant organizations that have been going for so long and who've, who've been in this space for so long. And it's something that I'm deeply conscious of as well and reflecting on constantly is that my, like my role as a, as a white man in this space as well. It's, it's, it's really interesting, sort of important to keep reflecting on that and making sure that the sort of the stepping aside is, is, is super important as well. And yeah, listening. And I had a wonderful conversation with Martha Awajobi a couple of months ago, who is uh, leading the uh, BAME online conference, so which is for black and brown fundraisers. And yeah, and it's and and that was a that was a it's fantastic, just a fantastic conversation about the joy that is beyond these conversations, meeting people where they are in their journey and understanding all of these issues and, and, and moving them forward and having these conversations that ultimately end in this place where, you know, equity and understanding and mutual respect is, is, is a joyful place to end. Yeah, definitely. And I think those principles are what, what the decolonizing of aid is about, you know, forget the big word sometimes. It's kind of those values and how they play out as being really the most important yeah, because it's a complex, it's a complex sector. There's a lot going on. There are so many power dynamics between INGOs within INGOs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they are they are not easy organisations to navigate uh, as well, and and then yeah. at the individual level as well, and uh, building a career and it, it's it's a really interesting space to be in. But um, I, I guess you're you're moving into a another really exciting, interesting space that is so, as you said, is so similar and has so many of the same challenges and features because these are all in based in the same systems, right? So it's it's an exciting. I'm I'm very much looking forward to to seeing what what you do next, Tessie. Totally, yeah. I'm really looking forward to it, and um, I think there's a lot to be done, a lot of work, but I think that just the time to I think you know, school will be a, an opportunity to reflect and, you know, feel inspired again. And I think that's exactly what I need at this stage. Yeah. And among, you know, your peers as well, are you seeing the same sort of appetite and creativity among your peers as well, like going off in all sorts of different directions, doing exciting and extraordinary things with their lives? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think, Part of why I love living in Nairobi is being part of so many different communities. You know, we have the Silicon Savannah here, you know, what is uh, the kind of uh, our context of the tech space. And it's a really growing hub for really, really exciting work in the tech space that also intersects with, you know, agriculture and fashion and healthcare i think we've i see a lot even you know if, even where it's not directly linked to my own areas of work for me i'm deeply interested and invested in seeing those intersections and having friends that work in those spaces and being able to attend events last night i was at an opening for this new initiative by creators who are trying to sort of change this narrative of and, and really emphasize the fluidity of creativity and that it's not a very, I think sometimes with, with, and this is what I was talking about in terms of narratives around Africa, there's like, oh, there's a way that African fabrics look, there's a way that African music sounds, there's a way that, you know, African people behave and that sort of thing. And, and that initiative is really, it's called Fluid. It's around in making those conversations more nuanced and giving space to creators and artists who 
you know, present differently, perform differently. And I think I was just really excited to be able to attend that. Uh, and I think there's also a role that the diaspora plays um, when you think of the when you think of the global, especially black diaspora, these movements around racism, anti-racism, like it's it's brought, I think, a, a much a stronger affinity to the continent. And you'll see that a lot of, um, you know, black people in the US, in the UK, in other parts of the global north coming back to the continent to participate, to engage, to invest, um, to travel, to enjoy, yeah. you know, what this continent has to offer. And I think that it has, you know, it's truly valuable and can contribute as well to what we're trying to get to. So that's really exciting for me. That is exciting. But what I've also seen the, the, the statistics around in like African internal tourism has is just exploding. People traveling within Africa as well, which is just as important, right, in terms of sh- sharing, because the diversity of Africa is obviously massive and, and sharing all of those cultures experiences is another key part of bringing that texture right and that uh sharing experiences oh yeah certainly i think especially during covid um you'll find that a lot of tourism was sort of marketed to you know to white people abroad you know the safaris and the beaches and all that and what happened during covid was actually people can't come into the country anymore and maybe we need to switch the strategy around who we're targeting to travel. Um, but I think the challenge is also that traveling within the continent is really expensive. It's not just a huge continent, but it's really just so expensive to travel. And so... Visas and... Uh, yeah. Visas, exactly. Yeah, and so finding ways to just get people to travel locally and visit other African countries, I think is a big, there's a big desire for that. I think, among young Africans. And I think that's where we look to leadership and to governance to really play a role in breaking those barriers and investing so that we can really, you know, participate and engage and, and, and travel and, and connect with each other in a way that we haven't done before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's exciting. When you, when you say it like that, it's really exciting. And yeah. Yeah. Wow, thank you so much for your time tessie i massively appreciate this yeah no this was great yeah it's lovely to talk about about something that is you know so reliant on fundraising but sort of a a step away and just to hear your reflections as you know who you are and what you've got ahead of you as well and just your reflections on on the experience of working at the heart of a a major ingo it's uh, it's massively appreciated so thank you so much thank you so much i really appreciated this uh conversation and can't wait to listen to the other ones that you've had as well i hope you enjoyed today's episode and meeting tessie if you'd like to find out more about the fundraising radicals and our work please do visit our website at fundraisingradicals.com Thanks for listening, and until next time, it's goodbye from me.